Hey, Howard. Hi, Paul. We're uh, going to talk metabolic syndrome this time around, which is a topic, weirdly enough, I think we've actually talked about it in passing a bunch of times, but never really gotten into it in detail, which is strange because I know it's a topic we're both, I don't know, fairly, how shall I say, acutely aware of, sensitized to, think is very important, and yet we haven't spent a lot of time on it. So it feels like a good time to do that. No, I think this is a great topic to touch on because we always talk about the treatment, but never the root cause. Right, practical-minded people that we are, which would come <laughs> as a huge surprise to my parents calling me practical. <laughs> so, so let's just start off with the with the easy stuff, which turns out to be not so easy, but we can at least pretend it is. What is metabolic syndrome? It's one of those catch-all types of. It feels like it should be something very specific, but as you dive in. It can get a little bit squishy, but at a high level, what would you say is what would you say is metabolic? How would you define it? Metabolic syndrome. It's average person who has a large belly or abdominal fat. They have high triglycerides. They have a low HDL typically, hypertension, and they may have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. or they're certainly insulin resistant. Right. And a lot of people simply don't know they have it. Yeah. It's not a phrase that they're told very often. No, it's not. And it's, it's, it's operated, I mean, under a bunch of different names over time. I was looking back at, I don't know whether it was Google data or something else, because I was like, why haven't I, I don't feel like 20 years ago I heard the words... I maybe and maybe I should have, and maybe you were talking to patients about it back then. I have no idea, but I feel like I wasn't hearing that phrase very much, even at ten years ago or fifteen years ago. And I was looking back, and you can correct me on this, but it's it's in lots of ways has operated under a bunch of different names. Whether you talked about it as the discrete things that you just described in terms of triglycerides or being insulin resistant or high blood pressure or all these things. But there's lots of other things too, right? Insulin resistance syndrome, obesity syndrome, dysmetabolic syndrome. These are all the same thing, right? Right. But what they're, what they're hammering on or around is the, the root cause. Uh, we know that the root cause of this is a metabolic disorder. Right, only about ten or twelve percent of adults are truly metabolically healthy, and the consequences of not being <laughs> metabolically healthy yeah. leads to metabolic syndrome. So, is it? Am I right in saying just those words? Is that is that something that as a as a field or as a discipline that you found your your peers using those words more often, or is it just that it's I just missed it? Meaning metabolic no. syndrome. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. You and I have talked about this a lot. If I was talking to a colleague, they would say, I have a 55-year-old, 280 pounds, uh, BMI of 40, hypertension, high cholesterol, and a big belly. Hmm. They could have just said a 52-year-old metabolic syndrome, and I would have gotten the whole <laughs> right. picture. Yeah, But on the flip side of that, these patients' physicians are not telling them they have metabolic syndrome. Mm. They're saying, you have hypertension. Here's a medication. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you get into this 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 mode where now you're just 
dealing with discreetly with each of the individual indications, each of the individual symptoms with specific medications, rather than saying these all have can be traced back to something organically, and it's something we increasingly call metabolic syndrome. So let's, and you've started to answer this question, but the obvious one is how widespread is it? And then more specifically, why should we care? And maybe the first question first. And I think I think you already alluded to this, but it's 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 a silent killer in lots of ways. It's everywhere. Well, it's silent until it's not. Yeah, right? yeah. And when, yeah. It, and, and when it shows its head, it's 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 not too late, but you're really far down the road. I mean, human existence comes to an end in in very predictable ways, right? <laughs> yeah. Cardiac disease, cancer, uh-huh. etc., and all of these have very similar root causes, and it's metabolic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Your heart attack didn't come on because you ate a hot dog tonight. As we've discussed a lot, it's an area under the curve issue. It's because, and the y-axis is time. And it's because you've been eating this since you were 12. (laughs) And it's been slowly building up. And it's not just the LDL. It's not just the reactive oxygen species and inflammation. It's not just the uric acid. It's not just insulin. It's, 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 it boils down to the same root cause of excess calories and poor calories, ultra-processed foods, over a very long time course. And let's maybe the good time to be clear here about something that I was confused about for a long time. It's not this, this idea that you know, eating fat makes you fat. We're not. This is not what we're saying. It's this, as you say, this area under curve issue with respect to the long-term exposure to a poor diet that lacks balance and you know breeds inflammation and obesity and insulin resistance. It's not some one direct relationship between, as you said, I ate a hot dog and now I had a heart attack. Yeah, no. For anyone who's on Twitter, they know how messy nutritional Twitter is. And it's really a shame because there's a lot of good scientists up there who we can learn a lot from. So no, it's not the complex carbs. It's not uh, just fats. It's not you know, just seed oils. It's not that honey that you put on, you drizzled on your apple. It's it really comes down to an excess caloric burden uh-huh. in general, right? I mentioned that high triglycerides are associated with metabolic syndrome, but most people have no clue how that fits into insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and where it comes from. Yeah, You're not eating too many triglycerides. No, right, exactly. Right? Yes. Your liver is manufacturing that. Mm. Why? Because it has too many calories to process. Why? Because your skeletal muscle can't take the glucose in. Why? Because it's insulin resistant and can't make glycogen from the glucose that's out there. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch to unpack there, but that's a great condensed summary of exactly the pathway here of of what's going on. And, And at each stage... And not it's not always the case in medicine that there's a that why questions can be answered, but in this case, we can actually answer a lot of why questions fairly definitively, right? <laughs> so that hundred percent, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about prevalence here. I've last yeah. I saw something like seventy or eighty percent of Americans are uh, overweight, maybe not morbidly obese, but at least overweight from a BMI standpoint. I think I saw, and maybe you shared this stat with 
Oh, it was yes, it was that something like half of undergraduate students being insulin resistant. So these are crazy numbers. These are crazy numbers, and the undergrads who are insulin resistant. It was very interesting data because it only affected the skeletal muscle. And when we dive into insulin resistance, we can get into how it then starts to affect the liver. And that's where things really go downhill. But what was also nice is exercise reversed it in these young kids. Yeah. But this brings back the AUC area under the curve issue. This is starting really early in our lives. Starting really early. And I I suppose... I'm not particularly surprised that a college student can reverse it with exercise. And while it's not impossible to reverse later on, you give it enough time and that process becomes really, really difficult. So it's it's important to identify these things early, which gets to the question of we talk about you know, why we should care, which is for all the reasons that we've just described. But and it's a bit tricky to diagnose because it's I'm not going to it's it's uncharitable to say it's a garbage can diagnosis but it is a basket of indications not one thing where you said oh I had my I had my metabolic syndrome test today and it came out as a 92 there's no such test right there's no <laughs> specific number I can point you to on one specific test and say here's here's the name of the thing you have it's more that here are four or five things a large waistline, high triglycerides, uh, low, you know, LDLs, high blood pressure, insulin. Resist- These are a basket of things that all, in the in the in combination, if they all start skewing the wrong direction, may be a sign that this is the problem. If you have a beer belly or a little gut, uh, you probably have metabolic syndrome. Yeah, and as I mentioned, physicians and other people are not connecting the dots for our friends out there. Uh, so if you're on lisinopril, atorvastatin, azetamide, yeah, and metformin, y- you have metabolic syndrome. You, know, you haven't been told it. You've been told you have insulin resistance, hypertension, uh, right. and high cholesterol. Yeah. But you have to connect these dots. So one of the things we you you talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of minutes ago but maybe get into this a little bit more about the role of the liver here one of one of the consequences of this syndrome is that we're, it puts a lot of stress on some specific body organs pancreas the liver to the point that this is rapidly becoming one of the causes of one of the major causes of liver transplants because of something like well NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease why don't you talk a little bit through that connection, which is, I think, would be surprising to people, that there's these other backdoor insidious things going on at the same time. As I started to mention in insulin resistance, the defect is that er- early on, you're making enough insulin, probably making more than you need, but your tissues aren't responding to it. And your muscles are the largest sink in your body to hold glucose as glycogen. But you need insulin to open up a channel to let that glucose into your muscle cells so it can manufacture and store the glycogen. Mm -hmm. And in insulin resistance, the muscle can't do that. And so those calories travel on through the muscle into the, the hepatic or liver blood supply and into the liver. So the liver has to deal with it, right? It tightly regulates your glucose until it can't. And it mainly does so to support the brain. So it packages this excess caloric burden in triglycerides 
And there's a lot of hormone changes that take place in these hormones favor fat synthesis as energy storage. And you start to store this not only in subcutaneous fat and in visceral fat, that's the fat around your organs, but you start to get the liver building up fat within the liver itself. And that's the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And And when you add inflammation to the mix or NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, now that's the, the number one coming or has become, I'm not sure, the number one cause of liver failure. Yeah, which is which is remarkable. And how do we know that? What's this is imaging studies, right? I guess not just imaging yes, studies. No. I mean, there's also obviously some uh, san- t- tissue samples being done too. But this is there's no way for someone to stand there and say there's nothing specific I can do. Which is back to my point about these being insidious things that I can't. There's nothing specific I can see that's going to tell me that I have an AFLD or something like that. No, it's interesting you bring that up. Your routine labs that you get from your physician every year contain two tests, AST and ALT. These are two liver function tests. Right. And it's interesting because if you go pull up what the norms were two decades ago, they were lower than the norms are now. And it's not because scientists have said, oh, the normals can be higher. It's because it's it's the median across the po- you know population. Yeah, well, that's so the norms are actually increasing. Huh, I, so if your AST and ALT are towards the high sides of normal, that you may want that to trigger a further investigation for NAFLD or fatty liver disease. So not to turn this into an entire discussion about fatty liver disease, but maybe just use it as an example. Some of the things, we're going to talk about some things we can do to try and proactively or even retroactively address the metabolic syndrome. But what's the prognosis for someone with NAFLD, for example, who, in terms of non-medical interventions, whether it's exercise, diet, weight, or others, is is it reversible for most people? So NAFLD is somewhat reversible. It's not easy, but it certainly can. It involves the same lifestyle changes, and they are coming up with some medications. And of course, our audience knows I am an orthopedic surgeon, and you'd be silly to take life-saving advice from me. (laughs) Um, But... uh, So what kind of life-saving advice, though? (laughs) (laughs) True. But with respect to NAFLD, but it, yeah, it, it is going to come back to lifestyle interventions for the most part, the same interventions that are utilized for insulin resistance. Yeah. And hopefully they come up with various medications and other interventions because once this starts to progress to NASH, the inflammatory side of NAFLD, it's a, it's a real problem. We've talked a little bit about how it's some of the, the things that are indicators, as you said, a large waistline, beer belly. I mean, I've seen stats like that what fraction of your height that your uh, your waist size should be. These are all, or seat of the napkin. What does that even mean? Back of the napkin. <laughs> what is the seat of the napkin? But back of the napkin calculations you can do. I just need to stop using words. <laughs> Use soft puppets. <laughs> Uh, these are all things that you can look at that give you or give your physician a sense of what's going on here. But 
others that you can see on your own also like high blood pressure can be a sign. Obviously, there are at least at more advanced stages, there's more specific things you can see that might be indications you have insulin resistance verging on type 2 diabetes. So it's not as if it's all completely mysterious like NAFLD. There are things you can see that say, you know what, if a doctor looked at me, they'd say this guy or this guy or a man or woman is is likely to be a, someone who's, if I did run the test, they're going to have metabolic syndrome. And those things are some of the ones you've described, like, like the waistline, middle-aged, slightly overweight or even dramatically overweight, doesn't exercise much. You go down that path and I don't even need to do too many tests. Right. I don't want to do what was it back of the napkin <laughs> it was actually back of the pants which back of the <laughs> i don't want people to stick to the rigid definition right right i mean if you're hypertensive and on a cholesterol medication and have a big belly i can correct that and say you don't have it but you either have it or you're going to have it and there's a damn good chance that you're insulin resistant and now your A1C, which you get checked, is gonna might be normal. So, right. So right. you're not on metformin. Yeah. But I can guarantee you you're insulin resistant. So I send a fair number of patients, yes, I do, for an OGTT, an oral glucose tolerance test, yeah. where they give you a swig of an awfully sweet drink. And then they check your blood at different intervals. Yeah. And if you check insulin levels, you should only require a set amount of insulin to bring that glucose load under control, yeah. transport it in, into your muscles and liver and package it away. But people with insulin resistance need a lot more insulin. So the insulin levels are a lot higher. Yeah. So you'll see this test bump up hmm. very early on before the A1C starts to bump. Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Because most people will be familiar with fasting blood glucose tests done in a more invasive fashion than 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 necessarily having done the oral blood glucose. The oral, it's not a fasting test anymore, obviously. It's a, you're directly exposing them to a glucose load. Right. So you can, people who are insulin resistant can maintain a normal blood glucose and a normal A1C for quite a long time yeah. before the pancreas just gives up <laughs> and they can't tolerate it anymore. So these an OGTT, I imagine, will become much more useful and widespread. I mean, every pregnant woman gets it, yep. right? Yep. Um, why shouldn't it be a normal uh, course of evaluation, especially if people are already hypertensive and have an elevated cholesterol? So let's let's take it a step further here and talk about the mechanics and maybe start with one that's well, at least closer to both of us than necessarily speculating about <laughs> glucose. But let's talk about the pathway from being overweight to metabolic syndrome. What's the, almost in the same way you were making that chain of connections from triglycerides and asking a series of why questions, what gets us from being overweight to metabolic syndrome if you travel the causal path? Because I think sometimes people yes. don't see that connection, how it works. So first, I want to draw a distinction between being overweight uh -huh. and abdominal obesity, right, or having visceral fat. There is a difference between subcutaneous fat and this visceral or belly fat, which is a fat that's actually inside your abdominal cavity, right? right? right. Beer belly yeah. is, you know, is visceral fat. Because there are people who are 
overweight, even obese, who could be deemed to be metabolically healthy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. Even so on some tests of, of on some studies, those people have even been shown to some but a mild amount of of, of, of uh, well, say obesity, but being mildly overweight from a BMI standpoint has been shown in some studies to actually be somewhat healthy. So you have to be correct. very careful about um, that. You don't want to be on either side of the BMI scale. Yeah. You, you want to be in this wide swath in the middle. Correct. So in those cases where we do see a where we do see a connection between and what we can march through each of these the insulin resistance in a, in a bit but let's talk about being over what is the pathway in terms of taking us to metabolic syndrome I mean the way I've characterized it is simply that the body has to do more work right you're overweight there's vascular resistance the blood doesn't want to flow the heart has to work harder that leads to high blood pressure you know hypertension's a bad thing for a host of reasons including heart disease but that's my that's my pathway that I'll draw for people. Is that the way you would do it, or is there more t other things you'd rather? Yeah, no, it's a little more. I think it's a little more complicated. It's like when you talk about cholesterol or LDL associating with heart disease, right? Is it necessary? Yes. Is it necessary and sufficient? Right. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You need to have that inflammatory side to it as well. So just being obese is not enough. No. And the difference between between visceral obesity, fat obesity, and general obesity is different. Yeah. Granted, a lot of obese people will have metabolic syndrome, but the and the difference is when you have a caloric excess that ends up driving insulin resistance, you're getting a large increase in inflammatory mediators in reactive oxygen species. Your Blood pressure is in increasing often because you're losing the pliability or flexibility of the blood vessel. So when the heart pumps and the blood comes gushing out of the heart, the vessel will normally, a healthy vessel, will expand and absorb some of that pressure. Mm -hmm. And if that tube is stiffer, then it's going to transmit that higher pressure further down. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, exactly. Right. No, that, that's, um, that, that's a really nice way to put it. So that's certainly, that's one of the drivers of a hypertensive cascade in metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And yeah, this is so complex. And as much as I read about this and understand this, there's probably five times as much that I don't understand. <laughs> that's all right. We can discover it together. But I, <laughs> I, th but I think we can still stay at this level, then what is going to become a researcher in the topics? I think it's more important for people to be somewhat aware of the drivers. And one of the things that I was, this is now years ago, but I've still stayed on top of the research somewhat, is that, and you've talked a couple of times about the important distinction with respect to this pathway between obesity and metabolic syndrome via subcutaneous versus visceral fat. And I had someone put it to me once that it's really important to recognize that visceral fat isn't different just because of its location. It's different in the sense that it's 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 a best characterized as a metabolically active organ, right? Which I thought was really interesting that the 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 the, the, the adipocytes in am I saying that right? In yes. in visceral fat are, are are actually different from the ones in subcutaneous fat. 
there's there's you can characterize them in in starkly different ways and their activity is very different one is much more passive one is much more active so one way to think about visceral fat as an un, an unwanted new organ you've grown on your own Right. <laughs> and it's up to things that left to your own devices, you probably would rather it not do. And I think that that's just such an, imp- for me anyways, was such an important and stark realization. And I was like, yeah, I don't want those. I've got enough organs right now. I don't need another one. And I, I remember years ago, there was a guy, I used to work at a golf course years ago, and there was this guy that his nickname was the bear. He was like, I don't know, six foot six or seven or something. And he always wanted people to punch him in the stomach. <laughs> right? Because he was like, not like this big, strong guy. But his, his belly was just gigantic. I mean, it was, I don't know. I mean, the rest of his body wasn't that big. I mean, he was tall. But it was, and in retrospect, you realize this was entirely, this was all visceral. This was all visceral fat. This was, it was rock hard, right? I mean, it was, there was, this was not something that was just hanging around at the level of, of cutaneous, subcutaneous tissue. This was something else that was going on inside. And if you ever watched him drink beer, you had a pretty good idea where it all came from. (laughs) But anyways, that was, I was in retrospect realizing that I was watching someone, this, this, this thing that this, that he was carrying around wasn't actually an extra organ. And it has, because of its cellular structure, it's got actually metabolic consequences for your body. So there's another pathway via which metabolic syndrome can emerge, not just because of you know, vascular restrictions with respect to obesity and high blood pressure, but also just because of the metabolic activity of of, of visceral fat. Right. And you, you are absolutely correct. It, it is uh, a metabolically more vicious substance, more inflammatory. Fat in general is not nearly as passive a, uh, a tissue as we used to assume. There's leptin and leptin resistance and satiety issues yeah. in generalized obesity. That's very complicated to understand, and I don't want to layer that onto this. But with visceral fat, that has much more of a metabolic cause and it is tightly woven into this story of metabolic syndrome. We've alluded to this a couple of times, but well, speaking of layer things on, let's layer one more thing on before we go forward. <laughs> and that's one of the pieces that links all of this and links so much of what's going on, and you've said it already, but we'll just draw it out, is inflammation, right? I mean, this is an in, metabolic syndrome, and if anything, is a is a, a species of, of, of whole body inflammation driven by a bunch of the things we've talked about, but inflammation is one of its core components. Yes, inflammation is necessary to create a lot of the issues that we deal with, you know, both metabolically in terms of our heart health, our liver health, our gut health, etc., and also from an orthopedic perspective. We've covered that a number of times. Your metabolic health, the metabolic syndrome will affect your tendons and joints, and that's all I'll say about that. But Inflammation is a key driver of this pathology. Well, the body and, and, and it is the body doesn't cope well with it. this. Is back to your area under the curve point, right? This the body doesn't cope well with long term exposure to inflammation, especially long term exposure to increasing inflammation. You know, we see we've seen all kinds of things, studies over the last twenty years, thirty years, showing the impact of 
of long-term ex- exposure is the wrong term, but area under the curve in terms of in body inflammation impacts on the immune system, on uh, dysregulation you know, of cytokines and all kinds of stuff, right? Right. And, and this chronic inflammation or systemic inflammation is actually a, a fascinating topic. We don't know much about it. it. It's actually very hard to define yeah. what causes or what is systemic inflammation, right? We can't put our hands on one mediator, right? It's not IL-6. Uh, yeah. It's not IL-7 or IL-1. It's And it's not just your C-reactive protein. What's driving that? There are going to be hundreds of compounds and proteins and hormones that are behind this, but they're tightly linked to our to our metabolic health. But the overall definition and steps to their creation is, to my knowledge, not extremely well elucidated as yet. No, that's my sense. But as I said, I'm an idiot about this stuff. So that's (laughs) impossible. I just don't know what I'm reading. But I I do my best. On, On that note of inflammation, let's Let's park this right here, and when we come back in our next episode, we'll talk a little bit about more of some of the drivers and then get into what you can do about it and how if, it's, if you're succeeding. Awesome. Great. I think this is a great set of talks. Great. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Paul. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.